0: Take your copy of the scriptures this morning and turn again to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Before we hear from the Lord in the word preached, let's uh, ask his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, Father, Oh, how we love your law, how we love your word, may it be the meditation of our hearts all the day long. Blessed are you, our gracious Father, Lord, whose love is revealed in your Son, whose love is the delight of all life, and whose word we love as the light of life. Lord, we pray, pour out your Spirit upon us now as we hear your word, and as we hear from you that in meditating upon them our hearts might be illumined and our days filled with peace and joy as we revel in your glory and your mercy and your love. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask all this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll be starting at verse 2. 1 Corinthians 11 to verse 16. Please give your full attention. This is the word of our God. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man, Neither was the man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord endures forever. May he add his blessing upon it. Well, I remember when I was uh, younger, when I was a young boy, there were two distinctive, uh, memorable things that happened. Um, well, there's more than two things that happened that were memorable when I was young, but there were two things that are brought to mind that I remember were shocking, uh, not only to me as a young boy, but to the culture as I remember it. And it was actually the same thing that happened. It was just two different occasions of that thing, and we've seen it since. But when I was young, there was a science fiction movie uh, uh, with an actress in it, because of the role that she was playing, shaved her hair completely bald. And it was a big deal. It was really big news at the time. Um, because usually, if, it, if need be, an actress would do something like wear a bald cap or some other kind of prosthetic. Uh, but this person actually cut off her hair and shaved her head for this role, and it was a really big thing. Uh, the other time I remember something like this happened was a number of years later. It was when a singer... Shaved her head, and that instance was more of a protest than a shaking uh, her fist at society. But it was shocking. My point is that there remains, to some extent, even for us in our day, a visceral reaction, right? Barring illness or treatment for cancer or something like that, there is a reaction that we have uh, when we see a woman with no hair, right? It still remains, um, even to our day. And so when we approach a passage like ours this morning, it is imperative, it was uh, to determine and distinguish between general principles and specific cultural issues. General principles and specific cultural issues going on uh, in that particular time in history. Uh, general, General principles are clear and binding upon Christians in different cultures throughout the ages. The specific cultural issues here discussed by Paul are not always clear to us. There are things that we just don't know. Um, but we don't need to worry about that because we have exactly what God wanted us to be preserved for us. right? But we see that the immodesty and the rebellion and statement being made by the long hairstyles in Corinth may be symbolized by another style in another culture. For this reason, we aren't to focus on the specifics in terms of application, but our focus should be on the general principle being taught. And Paul in this passage, which is the context, you know, remember this is in the context of his discussion and his answering questions about corporate worship. It's in this context uh, that Paul discusses these things. And the principle is that, is what? It's that there were inbuilt patterns into creation. Specifically here that God uh, that there was a God-designed difference between males and females that is not to be mixed or confused or violated or ignored. It's the way that God made things. And in the culture of Corinth, a woman's hair was often the object, as it is today, of men's lusting. Right? Again, this is still a reality, but because of this, much of that culture, much of that world expected a woman to cover their hair, her hair this was an expression of modesty and proper decorum in those cultures and so paul had to address this because it was causing issues amongst the corinthians and the point at the end of the day is that there was a problem in corinth with failing to see and appreciate god's design the proper relationship and roles between men and women were being distorted and paul uses this first century cultural custom of head covering to explain this and to address this issue and we even here in our day in 2019 are to learn from this that even for us that God's way right his design is not to be discounted is not to be ignored it is not to be violated of course it is never safe to do so and we once again must be corrected in our understanding Especially in the context of our culture, which has by and large gone off the rails regarding God's design for those who bear the image of that same God, male and female, um, both bearing that image. So we pick up in verse 5. We began to look at this passage last week. We'll continue this morning. We pick up in verse 5. But remember before we do so to set the context that verse 3 is key in understanding what Paul is doing here. And he gives three examples or analogies, right? And again, let's read those analogies, those examples from verse three of chapter 11. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife, of a, uh, the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God, right? So you see these three, man to Christ, wife to husband, uh, Christ to God, that is the father, Um and so the word head there. Remember, we talked about uh, was uh, it could mean source or authority. It may mean both. It probably, likely, in this context, in verse three, means source, right? Like the source of a river. Um, and Paul certainly is talking about submission and authority throughout this text. But here in verse three, he's pointing, remember, to creation, to this redemptive historical uh, reality, as they were created, man and woman, man, man and woman, right? This. Historical event, and he'll come back to that in verses eight and nine to confirm that that is what he's talking about. But before we get into verses five to sixteen, it's important that we understand something that Paul is doing that will greatly clear things up for us, um, if that is possible with a passage like this. Um, They will help us from uh, making some of the mistakes and the confusion into which some have fallen. Notice that in the verse in verse three, there Paul is setting out both uh, a number of things, and this is kind of a macro thing that we have to grasp. He's setting out both the equality of men and women and he's setting out their differences. They're equal but different, right? And you see how he uses the first and second persons of the Trinity to do that, right? He uses the analogy of the Father and the Son. Are men and women equal? Yes, they are, Paul says. Do they have the same roles? No, they do not, right? Does submission equal inequality? No, it does not. And how do we know that? We know this because Paul uses an analogy of that relationship within the Godhead, the Father to the Son. Are the Father and Son equal? Yes, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Absolutely. Does the Son subordinate himself to the Father and empty himself? Well, yes, he does. Yes, he does. Where does he do that? There's a reason we read Philippians chapter 2, Again, listen to verses five to eight. It says, "Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself." By uh, becoming obedient to the point of death, right? Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? And this, by the way, as an aside, is the crux of some recent errors, some recent erroneous teaching about the Trinity that relate the way uh, that relate to the way that men and women should be viewed and their a wife and husband. right. And this error that we uh, is, is relatively recent, Is by some who assert that the Son has been eternally subordinate to the Father. Well, I hope that you can see the problem with that, even as we have just heard from Philippians 2. Look again, what was Christ in the form of? God. What did he not count a thing to be grasped? Equality with God, right? That is the Father. So according to Philippians 2, when did Jesus humble himself? In the Incarnation. When he took on flesh, he was not eternally subordinate, right? His subordination comes in the work of redemption. And so the point is, brothers and sisters, that we must see that they are equal, the Father and the Son. Though they are equal, they perform different roles in redemptive history um, in that covenant that Christ agreed to do. Uh, So 1 Corinthians 15, as we saw, talks much of this. And we'll come back to this a bit later. But for now, see how Paul uses these analogies. Again, the head of every man is Christ. The head of uh, wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. You can't reverse those roles, right? I hope we can see that. The wife is not the head of the husband any more than man can be the head of Christ. See that? They're not reversible. All right, look back at verse 4 now as we move forward. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. All right, again, we talked briefly about this. We're not going to get into it this morning. We don't know exactly what Paul had in view regarding the covering, uh, but we can know that Paul's point is that for a man to cover his head while praying or prophesying would bring shame to Christ, his head. All right, and then we move on to verse 5. Uh, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Right? And one thing that should jump out to us, again, as an aside, is is that not only did men prophesy in Corinth, but women did too. And that would be would have been a big deal in that culture. That's shocking in and of itself, because in that culture, women were not educated, they could not be educated, and they certainly would never speak in public. We'll take out more of what we'll take up and explain and look at more of what was going on. Specifically, here, when we get to chapter 14, that also speaks to some of this. And we'll look then at the rest of the testimony of the New Testament when we get to chapter 14. But note for now that the world before Christianity had a very low view of women, very low. The first century Roman writer tells us that women are to remain silent as a sign of modesty and virtue. It is understood, it is a given. And even the Jews regarded it as a sin for women to participate in religious teaching. So what do we see here uh, is that being um, behavior and attitude of our Lord regarding women is what? Right? Think through the New Testament. What did Jesus, what was his view towards women? He allowed women to sit at his feet. His disciples were both men and women. Remember, he referred to one woman as a daughter of Abraham, possibly have shocked those around him, uh, thus in doing so, affording women the spiritual status equal to man, sons of Abraham. He appeared after his resurrection first to women. We can't forget how revolutionary it was, the way that God created men and women. And Jesus quotes Genesis 127 in Matthew 19, and he says, quotes it and says, So God created man in his own image, right? God created man as in mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. This sort of shocked the world at the time um, as he reiterates this from Genesis, right? Other cultures, uh, other religions uh, in Egypt and elsewhere and even in the Romans believed that their king, their emperor was the image of whatever God that they worshiped. But Jesus reminds us that when he created mankind, men and women, he didn't just create the king or the royal family in the image of God. He created all of mankind, men and women, after his own image. And that is truly unique. It was quite a change from the culture of centuries leading up to and including the first century. And so it is Christianity we must always remember and remind others Not a political, atheistic, so-called feminist movement. No, it is Christianity that moved forward the cause of women. Paganism oppressed women. It denied women education and all the rest. It treated them as mere objects and property of their fathers and of their husbands later. And so, with that said, have Christians violated the value and dignity women should have biblically? In history, yes, they have. Yes, they have, but when they have done so, it has been against and contrary to what the Bible teaches. right? So the fact that Corinthians, the Corinthians were allowing women to participate in religious instruction was quite incredible. It says uh, the prophecy, but it's speaking of there, probably most likely means uh, uh, spirit-inspired utterance regarding the meaning of a biblical text, spirit-inspired speech in the sense of insight into that passage. The point is, Paul doesn't prohibit them here from doing this. He he gives instruction on how they are to dress while doing so. What does he say regarding men and women? Men are not to cover their heads. This brings shame to Christ. Women are not to uncover their heads because this brings shame to their husbands. Women, says Paul, should not be doing things that disrupt, are disruptive or are immodest or gives the appearance of... Uh, of, of androgynous sexuality. None of that, Paul says. There's a distinction, there's a difference, there are roles. Let's not try to ar- erase those. Right? Men are not to look like, to act like, or to dress like women. And women are not to act like, and look like, and dress like men. All right, verse 6, he goes on. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Right? And again, remember, the situation culturally differs from culture to culture through different times. Hair length and style could be determinative of one thing uh, in one culture and a different thing in a different culture in a different century. But the principle here, brothers and sisters, in 1 Corinthians still applies to all cultures. There's, there's a distinction and there's a way that we should act and that women should be modest uh, for one. They're not to hide their gender or to look like males. Confusion is to be avoided. God made men and women in special ways. They're to honor that, not to try to erase that. They're to avoid styles and dress that have, as well, connections with pagan religious immoral behavior. We saw this last week as well. And so Paul is zealous that women not disrupt worship or cause contention by doing so within the church. And he certainly wanted believers there to avoid anything that would have possibly been uh, confused for paganism. This is true of men as well. And so with that, let's look at our first point in our outline this morning uh, as Paul moves and he uses uh, the creation order, the created order. Um, in his argument. And what he's arguing there in verses 7 to 16 is grounded in the understanding of creation, in the order that flows from the reality that man was created first, before the woman. And so, appealing to creation, the created order, Paul shows the complementary uh, roles of male and female, of man and woman. And he uses this to show why women women should cover their heads in worship and why men should not cover their heads. Right? Listen to verse 7. For man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Right? And so Paul here in verse 7 gives the reason for what he said in verse 4. Right? That a man should not cover his head while praying or prophesying. Man is both the image and glory of God. This is clearly a reference to the creation account. He is the image and glory of God. Remember Genesis 1, 26 and 27, uh, speaking of the created them in his image. And then Psalm 8, right? Remember Psalm 8 that we heard speaks of uh, being uh, the glory of God as he created them. Think about this for a minute. God created man. Mankind, male and female, as a divine image bearer. Right? As I mentioned earlier, this is a big deal. It's a big deal and it's different. Um, man exists to glorify God. That is his purpose. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. One of the ways men and women give glory to God is by being what they truly are. God's believing in compliant creatures, loving and following him brings glory to the God who made them. And according to Paul, before the fall, Adam reflected the glory of his creator since Adam was created as a divine image bearer. Paul is highlighting here that the female-to-male relationship mirrors, remember verse 3, the Christ-to-Adam relationship in that women are not made in the image of man, but in the image of God. Even though Paul tells us that women Uh, that the woman does reflect the glory of man. As we see when we read again in Genesis chapter 2, which I'll read in a moment. Woman is the glory of man. Nevertheless, she has her own unique role to play. God has assigned to her, and it's different than man's. Listen to Genesis 2, starting at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And The man said, this this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In Hebrew, it's ish and Isha. it's the man and woman. So man must not cover his head when he prays or prophesies. Why? Because the head of one who reflects the glory of his creator is not to be covered, for that would bring shame to his creator. And so even after the fall, man remains the image-bearer, an image-bearer of God. The opposite is true of the woman, See what Paul is doing. Because they reflect the glory of man from whom she was taken, she must have her head covered. Since it is God who is to be glorified in worship, and not man. Man is not to be glorified in worship, right? It's the Lord. And so she covers her head. And again, let's not lose sight of the, big, the main idea here. When men, when men and women, through styles or dress or fashions or whatever, when they thereby deny the differences between the sexes, and deny that they are indeed the glory of God and man respectively, what do they do? They fail to do what they were created to do, and that is to bring glory to God. Bring glory to God who created them, male and female, as divine image bearers with complementary roles in creation. Is this a problem in our culture? You better believe it is. Do we see confusion of the sexes as God created them in our day? Oh, we see more than that. We see not only confusion, but we see disdain, deliberate denial and disdain for God's distinctions and creation order, let alone his design for their functions and their roles. Of course, every generation observes this. I think there's a downward slope, but it's not just in our culture, right? even in the first century and and, and and before that. But I don't think I would get much argument in asserting that it has gotten exponentially worse as it has been force-fed into our lives on every front, from entertainment to politics. Even churches have acquiesced this point. And if you, brothers and sisters, believe what the Word of God says, what this book says, the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament, the completed revelation of God, His Word that is clear and authoritative and inspired and necessary and sufficient, if you believe that, then you are... by and large, an oddball in our culture, right? The norm of our culture is no longer so strongly Judeo-Christian based and even assumed. But if you believe what God says so clearly in his word, praise be to God for him giving you faith to do so. And may we always, dear Christians, submit to what the Lord says, even when it is completely opposite, in complete opposition to the world around us. This is our authority. May we heed the instruction and glory in his power and design and his desire for us as men and women and for his creation. May we never submit to the culture's disdain of God and God's ways, even as they disdain God himself. Right? And so let's, let's move back now, look to verses 8 and 9, uh, where Paul points us to the creation order. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, for woman, but woman for man. Right? Man does not come from the woman, but woman was made from the man. And again, why did God create, create the woman? To be his helper, or the old uh, language, his helpmeet, right? A helper fit for him. Right? And that word and that, that declaration that comes in that proclamation in Genesis 2 is the first negative proclamation in the Bible, right? The first. They call it a malediction. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. She completes him. The woman completes the man. That phrase was not invented by Jerry Maguire in the 90s. It's right here in Genesis. The woman truly completes the man. And that's the second point, this complementary roles that they have with one another. Uh, They're not equal in their design or function or roles, but they complement one another. When a man tries to fool with these truths and designs, what happens? It wreaks havoc on them. And we see this in myriad of ways. In the secular, truly disturbed and lost society that seeks to shake its fist at the almighty creator who gives us these things and these distinctions. Men and women are equal in their being and dignity and honor and value and worth. Yes, they're equal that each carry the imago Dei, the image of God. Nevertheless, Paul confirms what was there from the beginning in Genesis, that they are, there's a complementary relationship between husband and wife, between men and women. And so it is this complementary relationship that Adam has uh, a, a redemptive historical priority and is thereby given the spiritual headship over the woman, over his wife, so whenever Paul talks about male and female relationships, right, he is never inferring that Eve wasn't somehow inferior to Adam, only complementary to him. And for Adam was created first. And again, uh, dear Christian, while, we, while our culture seems to be wildly averse to God's design, and they are, what Paul is saying here is wildly contrary to the thinking of his time as well and the culture that in which he writes. right, The first century... Uh, women in the first century were subjugated and denied even the most basic of rights. So whether it is that uh, that thinking of that age or that of our age, right? The idea that unless women can do everything that a man can do, unless they are the same, they're somehow inferior, right? We must remember both the equality and the complementary aspects built in, inbuilt in God's creation, right? And then we come to verse 10. Verse 10 is perhaps, I would contend, the uh, most difficult verse in our passage. Um, and I'm not going to get into all the possibilities of what this could mean. Um, this, this could take you know, six feet of bookshelf space of writing to explain this, but it is likely a reference to those angels. Right again, verse 10. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority over her head because of the angels. It's likely a reference to those angels that long to look into the activity of God with man right now one verse i'll point you to is first peter chapter one verse 12 that discusses some of this it was revealed to them peter it says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the holy spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look right this is likely the reference in verse 10 But our passage continues in verse 11. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Right? Man is not independent of woman. So you can see here, this this gross uh, misrepresentation that so many have of what Scripture teaches. Paul is not a raging chauvinist or misogynist. Look what he's doing. They're, They're dependent on one another, he says here. This strengthens what we've seen so far. Men and women have different roles. And under the lordship of Christ, the order of creation, neither sex is is without the other. They are complementary one to another. And although man was created first and has headship over his wife, it does not mean that he is inferior. She is inferior to him. In no way. He goes on in verse 12. For as a woman was made from man, right, then what? So man is now born of woman and all things are from God. Right? Men, now all men following come from woman. And they are all under God. There's a beautiful dance of existence that we see that we can easily, we easily can and have distorted. We've seen this distorted in, in culture and history. But because it has been distorted, it does not negate its reality or necessity uh, uh, to adhere to it. And so Paul refers to the Corinthians in verse 13. He refers them to their sense of wisdom. Right? this is something that was big for them and he says judge for yourself in verse 13 judge for yourself to do what is right and then in 14 he appeals to, verse 14 he appeals to creation does not nature itself teach you about this he's saying again there's a culture and history in play here most men in that era wore short hair right there's some exceptions but by and large their hair was short and then in verse 16 Paul appeals to the practice of of the churches, the practices of the churches. If anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practices, nor do the churches of God. So he's saying the Corinthians needed to adopt these practices, accepted by all of the churches. And in this verse, Paul is saying what he'll say explicitly in chapter 14 about the need for everything to be what? Done decently and in order. So whatever Christians do, They cannot allow, previously he said, food right, or custom or fashion to get in the way of the gospel. Nor nor can they divide the body of Christ nor disrupt the worship of the church by these very things. Especially when it comes to the roles of husband and wife and what they do and appear like in public and in worship. It can be easily troubling. Those sending the wrong message by the way that they do these things, because it can be deceptive of the truth. It is lying. It's like our culture that tries to lie that men can be women and women can be men. They cannot. And this brings us to the wrap-up, point three, the conclusion of all of this. The conclusion of all of this. And that is for a woman in that culture, in addition to the things that we've already looked at, who was married, to be uncovered, would have sent a message of rebellion against her husband. Would have sent a message of rebellion. It would have sent a message of availability. An analogy I could think of is be like uh, refusing to wear your wedding ring in public if you're married. Right? It's denying the truth of who you are and what the relationship that you are. And it would say something. And all these things are going on here in order of creation and the relationship of the husband and the wife. But listen as we close, all that the apostle says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all that he says regarding these things, they are grounded in the gospel. And there are two gospel principles we can uh, derive from this. And the first is this, that Jesus Christ, our Lord, and his Father are bound to one another, not only in their being, but in their roles in redemption. And from that relationship of love the son joyfully and delightedly honors his father. There's no rift between them. There's no disagreement between them. There's no hostility. And So when God's word calls God's people to unity and peace and love and living life, it is a call, we saw this last time, it is a call for us to respond, to respond to and to reflect that divine love. And what does this look like? One example in our marriages. we read Ephesians 5 speaks of this. I'm not going to reread it this morning, but Ephesians 5 discusses this as kind of controlling in regard to what this looks like. It means that the wife should respect her husband's authority, as the son does the father's authority. and a husband should delight in his wife, even lay his life down for her, even as the father delights. In the Son, and together they should be a sense of willing and loving, mutual dependence upon one another. That is what should characterize our marriages. Remember what marriage is. It's a picture of Christ and his bride. And these same ideas applies to apply to other relationships in our Christian lives as well. That's the first gospel principle. The second is this. We need to recognize that God's purpose for His image bearers since creation has been that they reflect that intra-Trinitarian love, that love that exists within the Trinity. Don't you see the ramifications? The ramifications galore in our lives together that this should bear. Jesus, in His mercy and grace, gives life to you, dear Christian. He gave His life to give you life. And through the Spirit, your broken relationships can be restored. There is hope in those things that we all foul up with our own sin. The love working through us, that love that we are to reflect and thereby bring glory to God who created and saved us, that changes lives and relationships and can restore them. It's glorious hope, is it not? This is why it is critical that we conduct ourselves in worship in an outward form, in a way that reflects the love of God within that Godhead. What a glorious target for our lives. May we go from here, brothers and sisters, truly changed and truly challenged. And may we go with renewed comprehension and trust and awareness of that love, not only available to us, but truly reflecting from us by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, because it is yours by virtue of creation And even more so, we are destined to beam the glory of our King and Redeemer, Jesus, in the world to come. May we live our lives in light of that glorious promise and reality in our living, even now. Let's pray. Our almighty and merciful God, we we realize again and confess before you that if you should regard our merits, we would be unworthy to lift our eyes towards heaven and present our prayers to you. Our consciences accuse us, and our sins testify against us. And yet in your fatherly goodness, you have adopted us in Christ and delight to hear our prayers, which we offer through his mediation. And therefore, dear Lord, we look to no other king and seek no other advocate for that help that we need in this world and in the world to come. You call us to seek not only our own salvation and good, but that of your whole church and indeed the world. And we do do so now. We pray first, though, for your good word, your benediction on your holy gospel that has gone forth today here and around the world. To that end, Lord, we do pray that you would please send workers into your field to plant and water and harvest a people for your name. We remember, Lord, our missionaries, the Kowachis, and the Natragalis, and the Thorntons, Lord. We pray, bless them, protect them, protect their families, give them clarity and stamina and energy for the work to which you've called them. We do ask, Lord, that you would frustrate the work of those who would sow weeds of heresy and discord. Lord, pull down all the strongholds of Satan in this world and establish your kingdom throughout the earth. We pray, Lord, give fatherly attention to your servants who suffer persecution for the sake of the gospel and strengthen them in mind and body by your spirit through the means of grace. We pray also for those who serve our common welfare, even in the temporal affairs of life, especially those who govern us. May they do so with wisdom and integrity and more so the knowledge That their counsel stand under your final judgment. Dear Father, uh, you are the one who sends rain upon the just and the unjust alike. Lord, give to us also, we pray, such humility of conduct and faithfulness in our worldly callings that we may contribute to the good of our neighbors, even as we love them. With the love of Christ, we ask that you would restrain wickedness in our society, promote justice. the common good, and cause us to be the salt and light in this dead and dying evil age. Uh, We remember, Lord, also those who suffer from physical dangers and temptations and doubts and illness of mind or body, financial distress, especially those who are near death. May the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your Son, refresh them in their trials and give them grace to bear the difficulties you send them for their good Give also to us the grace to share in their suffering. As the body of Christ, to share in that suffering and provide for their needs as we are able to. Dear Lord, comfort, we pray. Your people, show your mercy to prisoners, comfort widows and orphans. Lord, we pray for those in in the military or whose business takes them far from home, guard their families and bring them back safely, we pray, dear Lord we pray for those of this congregation specifically this morning dear Lord we pray for Don Dorman Lord we pray we praise you for your loving this dear saint for your kindness for restoring his health and strength to his physical body we thank you dear Lord that you've uh, that you've called us to and given us the privilege to pray for him and encourage him Lord we pray continue to bless uh, this man and give him Strength and stamina in many, many more years as you heal his body. Lord, we pray for Ann uh, Flinor as well. We, can, we pray continue to bless her and be with her. Give her physical and spiritual strength. Lord, we pray for the Franklin family. Resolve, Lord, we pray. Whatever lingering health issues uh, that are present in Hannah's and in Rhonda's physical bodies, strengthen their faith. Draw them ever close, closer to Jesus, uh, our King and Savior. We ask, Lord, that you would deepen the bonds between us as spouses, as parents and children, and resolve conflicts and strife according to your wisdom and grace. Give to those among us who are single gifts for building up the communion of saints, as well as faithfulness in the face of temptation. And grant that your people may build them up in in their most holy faith. Lord, strengthen us, we pray through your means of grace, that we would worship you, not only with our words, but with our lives. And so build us up into one body, a city in the world whose light cannot be hidden. Make each of us, we pray, a living sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving pleasing to you. For this is our reasonable service in view of that sacrifice which alone has reconciled us finally and forever with you. We bring to your throne, these intercessions on behalf of each other this morning through that intercession of our elder brother at your right hand, Jesus Christ, your eternal Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.